0: Game Cool Books, Episode 24, We Are Strong. Survivors of Shipwreck, Lyra and Pan, were likened to at the end of the silver guillotine, and as the action is continuous across the chapter break into the witches, so the simile is extended. Lyra moaned and trembled uncontrollably, just as if she had been pulled out of water so cold that her heart had nearly frozen. The unspeakable though has been avoided for now. The harrowing episode has only deepened their devotion. Pan presses himself against Lyra lovingly in a striking phrase, loving her back to herself. And as he's pressed so close and not visible under her clothing, Pan feels the golden monkey's hands patting her down for what that nameless demon can only assume must be the alethiometer breaking the taboo in reverse touching pan's human once more there comes the adjuration as a transitive thought from pan to lyra we're only safe as long as we pretend though mrs coulter knows her name Deeper concealments than an alias are at Lyra's disposal. Even her tears, which are genuine and copious to Lyra's surprise and shame, will serve to misdirect Mrs. Coulter's suspicions. Her scented handkerchief and consoling words make Lyra determined to stop crying. But it still takes a while, and meanwhile, Pan's timid mouse form plays the same game. Fool them, fool them. Even as he also pragmatically checks the drink Mrs. Coulter offers them. They've been drugged once at Bolvanger, and Mrs. Coulter's role as dispenser of sleeping potions will be a major part of the Amber Spyglass. She's already personally lured at least one child, probably many others, to his doom with hot chocolate. Oh, maybe those days are behind her now. So, Pan's concern here is well-founded. But it's only chamomile tea. Focusing her attention on it to avoid eye contact, Lyra resolves to pretend harder than ever. Paradoxically, this is also how she can be most herself. To that most basic of invitations to the storyteller or raconteur, whether implicit or, as in this case, asked aloud, what happened? Lyra responds brilliantly. She invents on the spot a tale of being kidnapped from that night of the party by a man and a woman and taken away in a car of running out, wandering lost, trying to get back and getting caught by gobblers. With every second that went past, with every sentence she spoke, she felt a little strength flowing back, and now that she was doing something difficult and familiar and never quite predictable, namely lying, she felt a sort of mastery again, the same sense of complexity and control that the alethiometer gave her. She had to be careful not to say anything obviously impossible. She had to be vague in some places and invent plausible details and others. She had to be an artist, in short. Another double semicolon sentence. Though we haven't seen her read the alethiometer since the ambush by the Samoyed hunters, Lyra has been lying almost without a break from that moment. The overlap between the activities of storytelling and lying and reading the alethiometer is all subsumed here under the heading of art. The truth measure, of course, is also telling Lyra's stories when she reads it. They just happen to be true stories. And by the end of the series, Lyra will have to contend with that in her own storytelling in a very direct way. For now, though, lying well is good practice. As much as she's a natural artist, Lyra also has had a certain amount of training to get to this level. Mastery, which might make us think of the master of Jordan who gave her the aletheum. And she'll progress still further before the end. The issue of time is brought out explicitly in one of the few places that happens in the story here. Ira's journey along the canals and her time with the Egyptians had taken weeks. She'd have to account for that time. She invented a voyage with the gobblers to Charleston, and then an escape, lavish with details from her observation of the town, and a time as maid of all work at Einerson's Bar, and then a spell working for a family of farmers inland and then being caught by the Samoyeds and brought to Bolvanger. So, at that point, her story converges with the truth as we have it in the narrator's story. The mode of storytelling shifts then naturally into another key of curiosity, even indignation, not about what happened, but about why. Lyra asks this now, and Mrs. Coulter prevaricates, insisting that she is safe, as if that was all that lay behind the question, in short, not answering it, in a way which seems perfectly in keeping with Mrs. Coulter's own nature, even perhaps her own true nature as a protective mother, which is just beginning to unfold since that critical turning point under the silver guillotine. But Lyra presses her, but they do it to other children why uh, and just before Mrs. Coulter has a chance to say more than oh my love which could just conceivably be true if we're not being too charitable to her and believing it Lyra interrupts it's dust isn't it she normally would say Ent it. So we know she's on her best behavior here. She goes on. Um, you got to tell me. You've got no right to keep it secret. Not anymore. Um, that's sort of the thing she'll say to Lord Asriel later, talking about having or not having the right to. And after a fashion, Mrs. Coulter does answer her. Much as Lord Boreal had said back at the party, though he didn't say it in so many words, she claims that kidnapping and intercision is for the children's own good, because dust is something evil and wicked. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the distinction there is. It infects grown-ups, but children who have an operation the one Lyra almost had, are inoculated against it. They're safe. There's that word again. And happy. Um, safe from dust. Mrs. Coulter calling them happy, while Lyra is thinking of Tony Macarios, and presumably under that what almost happened to her, it proves to be too great a disjunction. She throws up, or at least dry heaves, at which Mrs. Coulter's reaction is quite telling, as it's equally automatic. Mrs. Coulter moved back and let go. Are you all right, dear? Go to the bathroom. Uh, Instead of playing along at this point, indeed it could have been an opportunity to try to sneak away, Lyra continues to press Mrs. Coulter. Her argument is sophisticated and yet simple, tracing Mrs. Coulter's claims out to point up their contradictions. She says, you don't have to do that to us. You could just leave us. I bet Lord Asriel wouldn't let anyone do that if he knew what was going on. If he's got dust and you've got dust, and the master of Jordan and every other grown-up's got dust, it must be all right. When I get out, I'm going to tell all the kids in the world about this. Anyway, if it was so good, why do you stop them doing it to me? If it was good, you should have let them do it. You should have been glad. Curiously, she also reintroduces both Lord Asriel and the Master of Jordan here, whom she must want to hear more about. The narrator doesn't tell us any more about Lyra's thought process here, but it seems to be a purposeful name drop. Lyra also recurs to the idea of storytelling with her promise or threat to tell all the kids in the world about this, precisely what the narrator is doing, showing and not telling. But Mrs. Coulter is not to be deterred by logic. She only shakes her head and smiles a sad, wise smile and takes refuge in a kind of masochism, of ends, means, justification. Good hurts. It upsets me when you're upset. And what really digs her deeper, goodness me, there are a lot of the grown-ups have had the operation. The nurses seem happy enough, don't they? And there's that word happy again. At this, rather than being sick, we see... Lyra blinked. Word for word, that two-word sentence repeats one that we heard back at their first meeting in Chapter 4. There the context was Lyra beginning to fall under the spell of Mrs. Coulter at her mention of talking to Lord Asriel about his plans to take Lyra to the North. Whether those really existed or not, uh, that's what she said. But here it's nothing of the sort seems like she's telling the truth this time and it's almost the exact opposite too as Lyra understands the nurses, she begins to understand what Mrs. Coulter means by being happy and safe from dust and a little later, peaceful forever very loaded phrase, near euphemism for death so the promises of a happy afterlife made by the church begin to map right on to the condition of Of the oblates who have had their demons cut away. As Mrs. Coulter goes on justifying these horrors, the key connection between this little cut and the suppression of sexuality begins to come into the open. She almost sounds as if she's giving her prepubescent daughter the talk, the birds and the bees. She says, all that happens is a little cut, and then everything's peaceful, forever. You see, your demon's a wonderful friend and companion when you're young, but at the age we call puberty, the age you're coming to very soon, darling, demons bring all sorts of troublesome thoughts and feelings, and that's what puts dust in. A quick little operation before that, and you're never troubled again. And your demon stays with you only... Just not connected, like a, like a wonderful pet, if you like, the best pet in the world, wouldn't you like that? Oh, Lyra knows these are shameless untruths. What with all the first-hand evidence she knows about, which Missus Coulter leaves out, like Tony and the demon cages, still more. Then she hates the liar, the wicked liar. (laughs) She hates the lies, hates them with a passion, pins polecat form, ugly and vicious as it is, and her nearly blazing as she holds him close, much like he sparked with electricity. All this asserts as much, though she says nothing more. Mrs. Coulter rattles on about having a bed made up, searching everywhere for her, and how happy she is to have her best assistant in the world back with her, speaking to Lyra like one of those pet demons. The monkey's restlessness, though, his chittering, tail-swinging, pacing with tail erect, make it clear he is far from one of those demon pets and that Mrs. Coulter is powerfully charged with dust at this moment, with more or less erotic intensity of purpose. The object of her fixed attention is the alethiometer. This brings us back to the master, who, like Lyra, Mrs. Coulter supposes must have hoped that the alethiometer would have found its way to Lord Asriel. She guesses correctly that Lyra was sworn to secrecy about her possession of it, and once again These two distinct secrets are assumed to be indistinguishable. Lyra's silence as to the latter, that is, her possession of it, prevents any further suspicion as to the former, that is, what the Master's intentions were, whether they were to have it brought to Lord Asriel. Lyra does inquire, though. Why shouldn't Lord Asriel have it? And something that she must have been fishing for when she dropped his name at first, to hear her mother tell her about her father, she finally achieves here. Because of what he's doing, you know he's been sent away to exile because he's got something dangerous and wicked in mind. He needs the alethiometer to finish his plan, but believe me, dear, the last thing anyone should do is let him have it. The master of Jordan was sadly mistaken. But now that you know it really would be better to let me have it, wouldn't it? It would save you the trouble of carrying it around, and all the worry of looking after it. And really, it must have been such a puzzle, wondering what a silly old thing like that was any good for. Dangerous and wicked. Now, it is quite possible that Mrs. Coulter is still lying about Lord Asriel needing the alethiometer, and still ignorant enough of Lyra's very different moral compass to suppose that by characterizing Azriel in these terms, she might actually persuade her to give up the alethiometer freely. But we have just heard Lyra calling Mrs. Coulter herself a wicked liar. Now, at her patronizing such a puzzle, silly old thing, Lyra's thoughts are still more deprecating. Lyra wondered how she had ever, 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 ever found this woman to be so fascinating and clever those echoes oh sorry those evers echo the never never of her devotion to Pan at the end of the last chapter and what happens now is at least a molestation if not quite the violent brutalizing of that previous scene Mrs. Coulter slips off Lyra's belt from under her skirt, her demon trembling with anticipation at the foot of the bed. Just as they are breathing fast, so Lyra and Pan, cat-like, are tense to spring, ready to run away. In the juxtaposition here, just as we've had a good look at two very different kinds of lying, we see a kind of emblem in the difference between Mrs. Coulter's narrow-minded pursuit of the alethiometer versus Lyra's expansive reading of it. The same goes for Mrs. Coulter's approach to dust and demons as her attempts to open the sealed container now, with a knife prattling along all the while. What a funny tin. Another tin. In a telling phrase, she is too intent on opening it to wait for an answer to her question, Who did this, dear? She had a knife in her handbag with a lot of different attachments, and she pulled out a blade and dug it under the lid. Uh, For this cardinal sin of impatience, the storyteller has his long-prepared payoff. Mrs. Coulter, puzzled, curious, pulled at the lid, and the golden monkey bent close to look. Then, in a dazzling moment, the black form of the spy fly hurtled out of the tin and crashed hard into the monkey's face. A dazzling moment, the very weapon Mrs. Coulter had sent against Lyra and Tan felt his pain when it struck him. Now hurts Mrs. Coulter, too through her demon's pain, and then directly attacks her. Moving up her breast towards her face, it is like nothing so much as a monstrous variation on the alethiometer that she'd expected and been sure that she would find. And just a little more out of a stretch, it might also be likened to a demonically possessed book or a bad sexual encounter. And after all that tension, we get one of the most frantic action sequences in the story, the literal and metaphorical release from Bolvanger. Running faster than she had ever run in her life, Lyra nevertheless detours at Pan's shouted, fire alarm reminder, and at another unexpected transitive, when he flashed a thought into her mind, she goes to the trouble of conjuring a fire to go with the alarm. And once again, whiteness is linked to the station. She dragged a bag of flour from a shelf and hurled it at the edge of a table so it burst and filled the air with white because she had heard that flour will explode if it's treated like that near a flame. All those burners going, set to uh, start a conflagration and that white filling the air are the logical extremes of the warmth and the hot food that we've associated with Bolvanger. Another echo comes in the description of the masses of children vivid with excitement at the word escape, recalling Bridget McGinn's expression after she was singled out by a name, vivid with fear. She had been close with Tony Macarios, and he's brought close to mind once more as Pan and Lyra go darting like fish through the crowds back to their dormitory. As she's done so many times, Lyra checks that the alethiometer is there, even before putting her furs on, and as long as it's been since she's actually consulted it. But by its very absence, it determined her escape from Mrs. Coulter, along with helping her build the skill of lying with which to lead up to that moment. And now things are much more straightforward. Either escape or die. At the exit, blocked by the wreckage from the fire and the explosions, they have to climb over struts and girders, almost like they did in the ceiling earlier. And to that neat either-or, we get the slight refinement of a wry both-and. It would be a fine thing to escape from the station, only to die of cold. To get the children moving, Lyra practices telling true stories. She enlists Roger to do the same. Tell them all to come with me. They won't. They're all panicky. Tell them what they do to the kids that vanish. They cut their demons off with a big knife. Tell them what you saw this afternoon. All them demons we let out. Tell them that's going to happen to them too unless they get away. Uh, Once more, we arrive in the Avenue of Lights made more terrifying than ever by the transformation into a firing range. For all the brilliance of the illumination, we first get ominous sounds over the children's boots pattering and creaking in the snow, and even over the crashing explosions comes the cutting howl of Tartar wolf demons. At long last, threatened ever since the gossip in the opening chapter, the Tartars make their appearance in the story. Then came another and another. They were all in padded mail, and they had no eyes, or at least he couldn't see any eyes, behind the snow slits of their helmets. The only eyes he could see were the round black ends of the rifle barrels and the blazing yellow eyes of the wolf demons above the slaver dripping from their jaws. Liar well, can only assume that the scientists, um rather like the scientists, The mercenaries of Bolvanger are not above casually breaking the great taboo. Through her despair, as she, via the narrator, contrasts this with an unexpected memory of Oxford, Lyra has another sudden idea. It wasn't like the battle's in the Oxford clay beds, hurling lumps of mud at the Brickburner's children. Or perhaps it was. She remembered hurling a handful of clay in the broad face of a Brickburner boy bearing down on her. He'd stopped to claw the stuff out of his eyes, and then the townies leaped on him. She'd been standing in the mud. She was standing in the snow. Just as she'd done that afternoon, but in deadly earnest now, she scooped a handful together and hurled it at the nearest soldier. I feel like she was probably in deadly earnest then too, but she's definitely in deadly earnest now. Deadlier than ever. So, as she did during the fire drill, Lyra starts another snowball fight. She's not the only one gifted with this kind of insight, fortunately, as someone else demon had the notion of flying as a swift beside the snowball and nudging it directly at the eye slits of the target. Somehow, the men's blindness seems sufficient to distract the wolves, such for the children to get by them. And if all this seems like a stretch, we are too caught up in action to quibble with it, particularly when the witches of the chapter title make their dramatic appearance. And then an arrow came flying straight down from the sky and struck another man behind the head. He fell at once. A shout from the officer and everyone looked up at the dark sky. Witches, said pentelimon And so they were, ragged, elegant black shapes sweeping past high above with a hiss and swish of air through the needles of the cloud pine branches they flew on. As Lyra watched, one swooped low and loosed an arrow. Another man fell. And then all the Tartars turned their rifles up and blazed into the dark, firing at nothing, at shadows, at clouds, and more and more arrows rained down on them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they proceed in the very next paragraph we get something else um, some children screamed and then more screamed and they weren't moving forward anymore they were turning back in confusion terrified by the monstrous shape hurtling toward them from the dark beyond the avenue of lights you are Bearnison cried Lyra, her chest nearly bursting with joy so awesome um, And in the fight choreography here. I think, for all its cinematic quality, I think you can see even more the influence of the superhero comics that Pullman talks about having loved as a kid growing up. And for me, it's enough to take the place of recess this week, um, reading some of these passages. It's clear where the main interest of the gameplay for this chapter would consist. And then in the direct hit Yorick has against the demon in that bright fire spilling out. We, like the boy who wonders at it later, must ask ourselves again what the matter demons are composed of must be like, whether it's more like an amberic field or a flame which burns without consuming uh, more like that than human flesh. To those who despair of Pullman's unremittingly negative portrayal of the church I think it's worth pointing out too that he has respect for the church's soldiers here at least. In a conspicuous phrase the force divided itself into two and then a little later the troops were magnificently brave. But then again a moment later they were dead. Perhaps this just points out how, like Yorick, we can treat the soldiers with their physical bullets as lightly as wasps or flies in comparison with the far more deadly adults of Bullvanger. In our last glimpse, its lights shine from behind and are present chiefly as long shadows cast by the children. Even in that harsh whiteness, for all its dangers, for all she nearly lost irrevocably. Lyra has gained something. As the lights behind them threw long shadows on the snow, Lyra found her heart moving out toward the deep dark of the arctic night and the clean coldness, leaping forward to love it as Pantalaimon was doing, a hare now delighting in his own propulsion. To the doubts and grumblings of the less story-loving, the less story-driving children, Lyra stubbornly insists on the primacy and the goodness of her story. She says, um, and someone says, I'm an Egyptian. Don't matter. They'll take you anyway. Where? Someone asked querulously. Home, said Lyra. That's what I come here for, to rescue you. And I brung the Egyptians here to take you home again. We just got to go on a bit further and then we'll find them. The bear was with them, so they can't be far off. Do you see that bear, one boy was saying, when he slashed open that demon, the man died as if someone whipped his heart out, just like that. So, just as the word escape had accomplished back at the station, the hope of that word home kindles excitement and relief among the kids. We might wonder, in passing, what home means for Lyra, At any rate, she intended to bring Roger back to Jordan, but I think her aim was always to go further on herself. Of course, that isn't part of the story she's telling them right now, and what matters right now is whether that story is true. All Lyra can do is to tell the story as best she can, so she gives evidence, precisely that which Miss Coulter left out of her account, like meeting Tony, who the kids know was taken about a week back. And about the release of the severed demons, which someone, I think, oh yeah, Billy Costa, corroborates. Yeah, I seen them. I didn't know what they was at first, but I seen them fly away with that goose. But why do they do it, so demanded one boy. Why do they cut people's demons away? So the kids asked some of the same questions that Lara did. Ask why. The only answer, dust, suggested someone doubtfully. Well boys laughed in scorn. Dust, he said. There ain't no such thing. They just made that up. I don't believe in it. Uh, the parallels to a kind of Christian faith or lack thereof are implicit here, and the echoes of the Exodus story, with all its typological weight, become insistent. Kids think fondly in a bit of the food and the hot drinks there it's all on fire the flesh pots of Egypt this is exactly what I think is happening anyway in the image that another kid points out next beyond the dazzle of lights where the fight was still continuing the great length of the airship was not floating freely at the mooring mast any longer the free end was drooping downward and beyond it was rising a globe of Lee Scoresby's balloon, Lyra cried, clapped her mitten, hands with delight. So Lee Scoresby deflating the Zeppelin to inflate his own balloon is just what Pullman is doing with institutional Christianity, siphoning its spirit to propel his own mythic story. And Lyra's wonder and her delight are our own. How had Lee gotten that far? How had he gotten so close to the Zeppelin? And what a good idea to fill his balloon with the gas out of theirs to escape by the same means that crippled their pursuit. I think something similar is going on, too, in the particulars of the children's exodus here. Lyra knows she has to keep them moving. She's got them this far on her words, escape, home, on a good memory with the snow and a little luck with the witches, and her friendship with the bear that certainly helped too. But now we see something interesting. Her encouragement, of course, looks different for each child, but the first thing probably goes for all of them. This is Pan snarling at one girl's demon, a squirrel, so we might even hope that this is Bridget McGinn herself. He snarls at her, Get in her coat. Keep her warm. Uh, Or uh, make yourself big and warm her up. Um, this is the opposite of separation. This is a conscious close embrace and it's made especially necessary because of the difference between the children's industrial coal silk anorex and Lyra's proper furs. They're made walking puffballs by their church issued outfits, whereas she and hers bought with fardicorum looks ragged like the witches and stinks Like the bear but keeps warm and so they keep them all moving it's what fardacorum and mrs coulter were both clear on in their stories you must keep going amid their mundane gripings lyra the visionary feels something like she felt at the end of the fencing chapter Lyra's mind was full of dark questions that flew around like witches, swift and untouchable. And somewhere just beyond where she could reach, there was a glory and a thrill which she didn't understand at all. And that sounds a lot like reading the alethiometer, too. These dark questions and this glory beyond give her a surge of strength, which we might think back on the way that strength flowed back into her as she told Mrs. Coulter her story snow gives the only light now the radiance of the snow covered ground as they follow York's trail Pan can still tell from the state of each child's demon what each one needs and Lyra tells herself that she'll get them there I'll come here to get them and I'll bloody get them um, Roger's following her example Billy's leading with his sharp eyes And uh, eventually, even Lyra begins dreaming of halting and just lying close for warmth, digging holes in the snow. The narration, as when she was drugged, is reflecting here by its style, her dreamlike state. There's ellipses, uh, there's incomplete sentences. Some of this is nightmarish. The engine sound the thought that they've wandered in a circle somehow and some of it's hopeful like the dogs and the lantern beams and some of it's poetically irreducible to either it's the little gusts of wind and wild spirits and freed demons of course it does turn out to be the Egyptians, but these were little lantern yellow lantern beams not the white glare of amberic lights. And they were moving, and the howling was nearer, and before she knew for certain whether she'd fallen asleep, Lyra was wandering among familiar figures, and men in furs were holding her up. John Fa's mighty arm lifted her clear of the ground, and Fara was laughing with pleasure. And as far through the blizzard as she could see, Egyptians were lifting children into sledges, covering them with furs, giving them seal meat to chew. And Tony Costa was there, hugging Billy and then punching him softly, only to hug him again and shake him for joy. And Roger. Roger's coming with us, she said to Farrakhan. It was him I meant to get in the first place. We'll go back to Jordan in the end. What's that noise? The narrator's abrupt shift to Mrs. Coulter uh, and his abrupt sentence fragment Mrs. Coulter, ended with a dash, it echoes her own naming of Lyra at the end of the previous chapter. And here she is poised to snatch Lyra away again, this time from her great hope rather than from her terrible fear. And likening the snowmobile to a spy fly at once gives us a stab of foreboding and focuses our attention on the shock of seeing that Not only has Mrs. Coulter survived the attack, she has, Lee Scoresby-like, managed to sneak up right close. She's already there. She's like the queen on a chessboard, moving unstoppably. And against the golden monkey, Pan, as he'd vowed to do, changes in a blur. But Lyra, struggle as she might, is held fast. Mrs. Coulter's frozen glare mirrors the amberic headlights, both of which we thought were left behind. Even the snow becomes more menacing. They're in a little blizzard of their own. And out of the whirlwind, Lyra calls for help. Help me, Fadakoram, Lord Fa, oh God, help! So, oh God, she calls. It's embedded in her language. Whatever her beliefs might be. Pullman's f- for that matter. Mrs. Coulter, for her part, is giving orders in the language of the Tartars, and Lara's bitterness at the situation is our own, as she's thrown like a doll, and as the Egyptians are not able to shoot back for fear of hitting her, and Pan is too worn out to change, but still grimly uh uh hanging on. And who was that? Not Roger. Yes, Roger, battering at Mrs. Coulter with fists and feet, hurtling his head against hers, only to be struck bat- down by a tartar who swiped at him like someone brushing away a fly. Oh. It's this time Roger who comes in fighting as the narration breaks down almost completely, completely, quite artfully, even in this moment. It was all a phantasmagoria now. White, black, a swift green flutter across her vision. Ragged shadows, racing light. A great swirl lifted curtains of snow aside, and into the cleared area leaped Yorick Bearnison with a clang and screech of iron on iron. A moment later, those great jaws snapped left, right, a paw ripped open a mailed chest, white teeth, black iron, red, wet fur then something was pulling her up powerfully up and she seized roger too tearing him out of the hands of mrs coulter and clinging tight each child's demon a shrill bird fluttering in amazement as a greater fluttering swept all around them and then Lara saw in the air beside her a witch one of those elegant, ragged black shadows from the high air, but close enough to touch. And there was a bow in the witch's bare hands, and she exerted her pale, bare, pale arms in this freezing air to pull the string and then loose an arrow into the eye slit of a mailed and lowering tartar hood only three feet away. Hmm. We finally see, up close, Bare pale arm of the witch, finishing off the combat, and with the witch and with the writing, were pulled up, caught and swept up to the basket of the balloon, where Lee invites Lyra aboard and to bring Roger by all means, and York too piles in with a creak of wicker, and then the witches let go of the rope, keeping it down on the ground, and Lyra thinks that no, um. No rocket could have, um, where is it? Oh yeah, she thought. No rocket could have left the Earth more swiftly. She lay holding onto Roger on the floor of the basket, pressed down by the acceleration. Lee Scoresby was cheering and laughing and uttering wild Texan yells of delight. York Birneson was calmly unfastening his armor hooking a deft claw into all the linkages and undoing them with a twist before packing separate pieces in a pile. Somewhere outside the flap and swish of air through cloud pine needles and witch garments told them that the witches were keeping them company into the upper airs. So, once more, as we're aloft with speed and yells and whoops, and wishes for company, the tempo changes once more. Lyra covers her breath, her balance, her heartbeat. She looks around, and we do with her, passing through a cloud, hearing about one witch lady in particular who wants to talk to her, and looking forward to having a yarn, and thanking York, by whom the whole basket is tilted to one side. If it's a metaphor for Pullman's writing, it's still fairly accurate, then, because combination of tidy philosophical instruments and talking animals, maybe weighted towards the latter, and uh, exuberant souls and a buoyant Eureka pulled by witches. I think that's what his writing is like. Roger, too, probably deserves Lyra's thanks for his timely headbutt. He looks warily at the bear, but to Yorick, Roger's just a flake of snow lyra looks out at the scenery what a sight directly above them the balloon swelled out in a huge curve above and ahead of them the aurora was blazing with more brilliance and grandeur than she had ever seen it was all around or nearly and they were nearly part of it great swaths of incandescence trembled and parted like angels wings beating Cascades of luminescent glory tumbled down invisible crags to lie in swirling pools or hang like vast waterfalls. So Lyra gasped at that, and then she looked below and saw a sight almost more wondrous. As far as the eye could see, to the very horizon in all directions, a tumbled sea of white extended without a break soft peaks and vaporous chasms rose or opened here and there but mostly it looked like a solid mass of ice and rising through it in ones and twos in larger groups as well came small black shadows those ragged figures of such elegance witches on their branches of cloud pine Lyra's dark questions were likened to witches before as if to prepare us to see them meet the glory of the aurora now and the promise of a talk with Serafina Pecola about dust in the next chapter. We get a description of her now. She was young, younger than Mrs. Coulter, and fair, with bright green eyes, and clad like all the witches in strips of black silk, but wearing no furs, no hood or mittens. She seemed to feel no cold at all. Around her brow was a simple chain of little red flowers, She sat on her cloud pine branch as if it were a steed and seemed to rein it in a yard from Lyra's wondering gaze. The witch queen, crowned with a chain of little flowers, is compared at once to Mrs. Coulter. At her house, Lyra had tried out cosmetics and dressed fashionably, seeing the power of femininity for the first time. But seeing Serafina up close in all her simple elegance, and otherworldly powers of flight and warmth and youth, she suddenly realizes why Koram loved her and why it was breaking his heart, though she had not known either of these things a moment before. It has to do with old age and youth. In a voice like the aurora, so that sound and sense are confused, which Queen asks Lyra first about the symbol reader. Kaiza makes a cameo, so the children's demons must have reached some kind of shelter, we can assume. And we learn that the Egyptians were victorious. Both of those goals that they set out with intention uh, to rescue the children and to punish the gobblers have been accomplished, though the first perhaps a little more fully than the second. All the kids are safe, but of Missus Coulter, there is no sign. In a wild yell, presumably rather different from Lee's, she summons the witches and has the air not throw them the rope. Once more, question is raised. So, Lyra, do you know why you're going to Lord Asriel? Lyra was astonished. To take him the Alethiometer, of course. She had never considered the question. It was obvious. Then she recalled her first motive from so long ago that she'd almost forgotten it or to help him escape. That's it. We're going to help him get away. So this conflict or incoherence between goals uh, is brought to the forefront here. Whether to take him the lithiumeter or to help him escape or both what those things might have to do with one another, and of course what those things are going to have to do with dust. is going to be a uh, quite the yarn, uh, but before we can get to that, Lyra yawned. And it looks almost like Serafina Pecola uh, in reaching a hand over the rim of the basket and touching her eyes, cast a kind of sleeping spell on Lyra um, so that she can get some rest as uh, they moved north toward Svalbard. So, that's what we'll get to next time. Uh, entering into part three. As I said, we'll pass over the recess for this one as I think you can get a pretty good idea of it just from the fight scenes. Um, trying to Think out some of the choreography there and imagine what that must look like. And if you've got time, you can think too about the staging of the firework maker's daughter um, and how Pullman says at the end of his essay about it, I repeat, you have to start with fun. So a lot of interesting material there to consider. And I hope that you are having fun. Thanks again for listening.